1: Happy Mother's Day. Good to see everybody here today. What a wonderful job by our choir. Can we give them a round of applause as they're coming in? It's a great one. Little, little tidbit, that song, Bless Assurance, was written by Fanny Crosby, who was a blind woman, um, almost from birth. And uh, that line, watching and waiting, looking above, takes on a little deeper meaning when you consider that, huh? So... We've gathered here today. There's a lot to talk about. This is the last week of our series. Isn't she lovely? I thought about whistling again for you this morning, but I decided against that one. So here's the story though. In every house I have ever lived in, and I'm pretty sure in every house I've ever been in, they've had the same thing in the kitchen. And I'm not talking about the microwave or the stove or the refrigerator. I'm talking about that all-American innovation that answers the question, honey, where is the masking tape, known as the junk drawer. (laughs) That's it, the junk drawer. I can't tell you how many times I've yelled from some obscure corner of our house, Mandy, where is the whatever? And then the answer inevitably comes, look in the junk drawer. The perfect symbol of the twin American virtues of overabundance and quick accessibility. Everything you need right where you never thought to look. The junk drawer. So, this is the last week in our five week teaching series called Isn't She Lovely? A Study of the Church. First week was the church's baby book, Acts chapter 2. Week two, 23 years later, body life and 1 Corinthians. And then week three, the mission that moves the church. Last week, three threats that are facing the church, competition, contention, and consumerism. Here's today, the junk drawer. Don't overread into that. This is hopefully not junk. Hopefully this is helpful for you. Here's the idea, though. Um, nine questions today that a lot of people ask about the church, but no one actually asks. Things that we wonder, but never really see the light of day. Most of this series has dealt with like, the theology of church. Okay? So, little c, church. Big concepts. Last week we kind of moved a little closer to church as it is in like 2023 United States. And this morning we're going to narrow the lens even further. And we're going to talk about the church here at North Canton Chapel. What does this mean? So here's the idea. Um, when I meet with people who are curious about church... Uh, who we are, where we came from—these uh, questions come up in new members' classes. They come up in conversations. Um, about nine or so questions that are fairly common tend to rise to the surface, and so we're going to look at those this morning. Um, here's my promise: this morning, um, we're not going to be in one text. We're going to be kind of all over the place, so it's going to feel a little bit like a junk drawer, moving around a bit. Um, it's going to feel like drinking a little bit from a fire hydrant. There's going to be a lot of content, so. Note takers, you've been warned. Um, but I think, I hope, I think, I think this will be helpful. I hope so. So with that as the baseline, let's open the junk drawer together. Nine questions that nobody asks about North Cannes Chapel, but everybody kind of wonders. Here's the first question that comes up a lot. Is the North Cannes Chapel part of a denomination? This is a really common question that comes up a lot, um, especially almost in every Membership Matters class. So I'll give you the short answer, and I'm going to back up and give you the longer answer. Short answer is no, we are not part of a denomination. We are an autonomous local church. And all that means is that we receive neither funding, guidance, nor oversight from an outside denomination or another church. And the word for that is not independent. The word is autonomous, and there is a difference, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, Now, autonomy has its pluses and its minuses. On the plus side, we are free as a church to be really agile. We can move quickly. We don't have to wait for approval before we make decisions or like when we designate funds for specific missions projects. Decisions that we make as a church come right out of our own body, right out of our own burden. Another plus has to do with pastors. Uh, Some denominations, you may know this, move pastors around. Um, some of you wish that was the case, I don't know. Um, but we don't have to do that. We get to stay here as long as we want, I guess, I don't know. But we don't, we're not subject to those kind of movements. We're also free to hire staff and shape ministry strategy. So those are like the pluses, but there are some minuses to autonomy. Autonomy can mean lack of accountability. Autonomy can mean competition, right? Like we talked about that last week. Autonomy can mean just like plain old simple arrogance, like I don't need anybody else. We're just fine. So here's something that I want us to know. As a church, we are autonomous, but we are not alone. That's a big distinctive. We are autonomous, but we're not alone. Proverbs fifteen twenty two. you can write this down, says this. This is a great verse. Think thinking about church, thinking about your own life. Here's what it says. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Translation, like, go rogue at your own peril in life. That's true of church. So for me, um, I'm part of a shepherding cohort. I get together with other pastors. Uh, Dave Short, our executive pastor, is part of an executive pastor cohort. Uh, I could go down the line. Judy and Dave and uh, Micah, we're all surrounded by other pastors and ministry leaders in our area who we lean on and draw from uh, for support. That's an important thing for you to know. We're not part of a denomination, but again, uh, we are autonomous, but we are never alone. So the second question, kind of related to this one that comes up a lot, and maybe this is the question underneath the question, is, well, how did North Canton Chapel get here? All right, story time. Everybody got your carpet squares? Here we go. So in 1980, before I was even born, sorry if that makes some of you feel older. In 1980, a group of people who lived in North Canton, but attended the chapel in Akron, began dreaming and praying about starting a church down here. And so they started praying. Four years go by. Okay, that's important. They prayed for four years for the Lord to lead. So, four years go by, and then in November of 1984, they started a Bible study in their homes, basically what we would call a community group. From there, the group grew, started meeting in Malone College. Six months later, NCC had our first service on Easter Sunday, 1985. And then, after more growth, we moved to the North Canton Y, baptizing new believers in the pool. I love this picture. Isn't that cool? Then 1995, the first building was on site here. It was the first blueprint, groundbreaking ceremony. And then more site expansion in 2000. Since then, we've planted two other churches, and we host about 900 people every weekend. Now, that's great context, but here's what I want us to see. First, we are basically a grown-up church plant. I don't know if you think about it that way, but we're basically a grown-up church plant. The reason this whole thing started is based on the belief that there are lost people in North Canton who deserve to know the hope of the gospel. Here's the question, has that changed? No. There are still people who deserve to know the hope that Jesus offers in our immediate area. We are still called to be that which we were called to be. Church planting is in our DNA, and we will do it again. Second thing I want us to hear, story matters. So we're 43 years old. Roughly, I'm 42. We're 43 years old. You wouldn't start a book 43 chapters in, would you? Because everything that is written on the pages yet to come is built on the pages that have already been read over here. And so... You need a way of thinking about this. The road to our future runs through our pasts. This is related to this. And so part of being a church that's 43 years old is faithfully envisioning the future, but also honoring and stewarding the pasts. Third thing that I want you to hear about this story. Stewarding that story, any story, is really, really, really hard. And it's why many churches would rather forget the past than honor it. This last week, um, several of us sat down with some old church directories from the chapel back in the 80s and 90s. We pulled them out of a file cabinet. Some of you were in there. Some of you had hair. Just joking.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was really fun like to look back through these old pictures. Like We pulled some of those out and we're going, oh man, look how faithful God is. And there was a lot of joy and a lot of fun looking through that, but there's also a lot of pain and a lot of loss. I want to talk a little bit about that this morning as we move, but if you're going to steward the story of a church, it's just like a family. Stewarding the story means opening yourself up to the emotions that that story wants to teach you and not suppressing them. It's a little harder to do. So that's how we got here. We're 43 years old, a heart for this place, a heart for this people, a great history, and I believe a great future. So let's zoom to another kind of related question, and this one's going to seem a little weird, but number three, are we evangelicals? That question comes up a lot in Membership Matters. It surprises me. Um, Here's the idea. The word evangelical, in my mind, sadly, has been recently co-opted to mean a political group. (laughs) Um, And I'm a little salty about that. Because I'm not willing to surrender that word to something as passing as partisan politics. Um, I believe it's a good word. I think it's a word worth salvaging. So short answer, are we evangelical? Yes, North Canton Chapel is an evangelical church, but the larger question that you may be asking, especially if you came out of a Catholic or a denominational background, what does that even mean? So, having taken through a little bit of local history, let's zoom up and have a cultural conversation. Um, To be an evangelical means that your faith is marked by four theological distinctives. So we're going to get a little little academic here for a second, and then we'll pull it out. So four distinctives, or four convictions. Conviction number one is biblicism. Biblicism. Take the Bible very seriously as a guide to life. That's why we preach. That's why we talk about the Bible all the time. Um, This is not just an interesting history book. This is not just a collection of nice sayings or quaint stories. This is not just a pile of fortune cookie proverbs that help us live a nice life. Here's what it means to believe in this book or to have a biblical framework. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God, okay, so this is something given to us from God, but it's profitable, means it's useful. Well, useful for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be competent or complete, maybe your translation says, equipped for every good work. Here's why Biblicism matters. Our world needs a solid source of truth now more than ever. And you have options when you look at your world. We need something to keep our life from going off the rails. Here are your options. You can choose yourself to make yourself your own authority, which, by the way, is the order of the day. To suggest that you are not your own authority is the most countercultural thing. You could look to our world around you and look at the culture. So how's that going? (laughs) Or you could look to something that doesn't change, something that is immovable, something outside of yourself. And for me, I've just become convinced that this is a much better source of truth than I am. This makes better sense of my life than I could. That's what we mean by this first emphasis of biblicism. Second conviction, or second emphasis, is the cross. We talk about this a lot. Put really simply, Jesus fixed what I messed up. And if you've been at North Kent Chapel for 15 minutes, You know we make a really big deal about this. Here's why. Paul talks about this when he says this in Romans chapter 1. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then because he's writing to a multi-ethnic group, he says to the Jew first, that's where Jesus came first, but also to the Greek, which is probably most people in here. You're ethnically Gentile. So what's he mean by this? Basically, like without the cross, I've got nothing. I don't want to talk about anything else. Preaching doesn't make sense if you remove the cross. But here's why I think the cross matters in our world today. I believe that you can trace most of human suffering back to the feeling of not being loved. And I know that sounds really broad brushstroke, but I really believe that. Most human suffering, you could trace it back, not all of it, but a lot of it comes from not feeling loved. And the cross screams loudly, emphatically, God loves you so much that he took the initiative to pay the cost for your sin. He'd rather die than be without you. And if we were to pay attention to that love rather than the thousand other voices screaming at us, our lives would actually be more conducive to human flourishing. That's why the cross matters so much. It's a message that the church cannot lose. Third conviction or third emphasis of kind of an evangelical theology is what we call personal conversion. Like the light bulb has to go on. I know conversion is an old word and it sounds a little like, wait a minute, hang on. Are we yelling at bullhorns here? Like what are we, conversion, what's that mean? Here's what it means. Your faith has to be personal. You don't inherit faith. There has to be some light bulb moment in your life where you go, This is for me. One of my favorite Christian thinkers, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, put it this way. I think you'll like this. He says, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a car. I really like that. He means that no one becomes a Christian by proxy just because you're around Christian things. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christian. You're not a Christian because you happen to grow up in America, which is supposedly a Christian nation. This has to be personal. Have you ever said, I'm a sinner, Jesus is enough? If this isn't personal for you, you're just standing in a garage calling yourself a car. Here's why personal conversion is so important. The world is baiting Christians To defining ourselves by passing opinion, and so many of us are buying it hook, line, and sinker. I don't care about 99% of the things the world is telling me I should care about because I'm choosing to define myself by the one thing that makes the greatest difference, Christ alone. Not academic for me. He changed me. And that's many of your stories also. So that's this third emphasis. The fourth one, what does it mean to be evangelical? Activism. This has to go somewhere. This is just a logical outworking of the first three. That your faith, if it's really, truly genuine, needs to move somewhere in your life. It should move outward through our relationships, taking root in our local place, and ultimately in our world. If we really know Jesus, really, if he's really changed our lives now, and changed our eternity then, then why would we want to hoard that truth? We need to be outward facing. I think we need to remember, in this age of division, that the gospel is first and foremost good news. That's what evangelism and evangelical means. We are good news people. And doesn't our world need good news right now? That's our job. That's what we get to be. Good news So if you take all four of those, let's hit them really quick for the academically inclined among us. (laughs) Biblicism, the cross, personal conversion, and activism. Those kind of comprise theological distinctives that make the North Canton Chapel an evangelical church. Evangelical is not a political word. It shouldn't be. It's a theological word, and it's a good one. So speaking of beliefs, let's get specific. Question number four that comes up a lot that we'll walk through. Where can I learn more about what NCC believes? I'm gonna give you three answers really quick. First and foremost, um, we believe that clarity is kindness. You've heard that a lot. And so what that means is it's actually unkind to be evasive about what you believe. And so we've put our statement of faith available online. You can look at it right here, nchapel.com beliefs. And you can walk through different sections to see what we believe about what you're curious about. But second thing I wanna let you know Sometimes statements are great, some people just need to read it, but sometimes the conversation is better. This last week, um, I had lunch with a guy uh, down at Mission Barbecue, praise God, it was wonderful. His choice too, I was like, oh, twist my arm, really? So we had lunch together and over 45 minutes we talked through um, a, a conversation that he was curious about some things on a specific issue that we believe here at North Canton Chapel. Sometimes you need that face-to-face stuff, you know? And so for that, head to ncchapel.com slash beliefs. There's actually a form that you could go, you know, I'm really curious what you believe about this. Can we talk more about that? Or maybe you're saying, you know, I had a bad experience in a church about this, and I, can we talk about that? You just need some face-to-face stuff. And so I want to encourage you. For those of you watching online this morning, that link is going to be in the comment thread. Um, but this is an opportunity for you just to, to get closer if you're curious Third answer to this question, where can you find what we believe? We've done this exercise before, and I I think this is often helpful for people. I think in terms of thinking theologically, it's helpful to think into a couple of categories. Here they are. Dogma, doctrine, and preference. Okay, let's go through this really quick dogma. Dogma is this like, this is orthodox stuff. This is like you have to believe this to be saved, right? So like divinity of Jesus, that's a pretty big deal. Inspiration of scriptures, that's a really big deal. Is Jesus the son of God? Really big deal. Did he die and make atonement for my sins? That's like dogma type stuff. That category. Second category is doctrine. You ready? Watch this one. Predestination versus free will just got a little spicier, you know. Things like baptism, right? Believers baptism or baptism by sprinkling. Communion method. Right? These types of things, eschatology, like premillennialism versus postmillennialism. Half people are like, "Wait, hang on. No, I don't want to go there." That's doctrine, the second category. Okay? Third category is preference. Hymns versus choruses. Suit and tie, jeans and a t-shirt. Carpet color. Version of scripture you're reading, okay? Preferences. So there's dogma, doctrine, preference. Here's the deal. Let's walk through this a bit. Those things are arranged like a pyramid. On the bottom, I've got a ton of preferences. A ton of them. And you do too. Preferences just say like, gosh, it just feels right. Okay? Doctrine. There's some doctrine, yeah. We all should know that. I have way more preferences than I do doctrine. <laughs> but then at the top is this dogma stuff. There's not a whole lot in this category, but the things that are there, I would be willing to die for. Like, I would take a bullet for the divinity of Jesus. I'm not going to die for carpet color. Here's the thing. Church gets really squirrely when we treat dogma like preference and preference like dogma. Some of you have been a part of churches like that. It's terrible. And so how do you keep these things aligned? Right? How do you keep dogma like dogma, doctrine like doctrine, and preference like preference? Treating preferences like dogma ultimately leads to cold-hearted legalism. Like you got to act a certain way, dress a certain way, vote a certain way, think a certain way. That doesn't work. But if you treat dogma like preferences, that leads to limp-spined liberalism. Just like, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. No, it does. A lot of this matters. So here's how this plays out. On issues of dogma, be firm. Know what you believe and why. There's no excuse for being an uneducated Christian. Know what you believe and why. On issues of doctrine, be thoughtful. Position yourself as a learner. It's the best thing you can do. On issues of preference, be honest. Be honest. If you like hymns versus choruses, that's fine. Just be honest about it. It's okay. There's no shame in liking what you like. It's good. Last word, and then we'll move on to the next question. No matter what, though, no matter what category, always be gracious. A 17th century German theologian put it this way. I'm going to read it to you because I love it. He says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity be gracious, because while preferences might matter down here, maybe, you know where they're not going to (laughs) matter? Up there. (laughs) All right, shifting gears wildly, another question that often comes up, question number five, where does North Canton Chapel get its money? Now here's what I like about this question. Questions about money are never about money. Think about your marriage, those of you that are married. Always deeper than dollars. Questions about money usually tied to things like freedom and influence, what I value and what I don't value. Sometimes when things get sideways, questions about money start to get about power. Yeah, that's ugly stuff. I like this question also because um, it's a principle that uh, applies in marriage and it applies in your relationships. When you talk about things that are taboo, right, you actually empty them of their power over you. And so it's one of the reasons why we give our quarterly financial updates here from the stage is because, like, it's just money. We don't want it to have power over us, and so we can actually talk about it a lot more freely. So how do we get our money? Quick answer. 100% of our regular income here at North Canton Chapel comes from our tithes and offerings. Okay, you should know that. We don't get any support from a denomination because this is the United States and we don't have a state church. We don't get regular support from a government. We don't share resources from other churches. 100% 100% of our regular income at North Canton Chapel comes from our tithes and our offerings. So that's income. How about outgo? How do we spend the money? So, a couple of financial commitments that I want you to know. And you hear it a lot if you've been a part of North Canton Chapel. If this is like your first month here, this is brand new, but stuff you need to know. First, we don't spend money that we don't have. Here's what God's word has to say about that Proverbs, Proverbs 22, verse 7. Great principle. The rich rules over the poor, and here's the second part. The borrower is slave to the lender, and everybody with student loans said, ugh. (laughs) Here's all that means, whether it's your family, your personal life, or church life, debt limits what you can say yes to. Does that make sense? When your money is tied up in loans and other stuff, it limits what you can say yes to, and so we as a church want to be free to say yes to whatever the Lord has in front of us. We stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us and handled money well. Some of them were in those pictures you saw earlier, that our building is debt-free. We don't have any debt. Praise God for that. We inherited that from wise people who have come before us. It frees us to be open for what God has. second thing you need to know about our church, though, is we're a financially conservative church. Here's what that means. As your pastors and staff are pray are. Paid at industry standard, not above or below. Our staff are creatively conscious with how to handle resources that you entrust to us. What that means is given the choice between the Chevette, the Corolla, and the Cadillac, nine times out of 10, we're probably picking the Corolla. Nothing wrong with a Corolla, by the way. Third commitment, though, is we're also committed committed to being a generous church. So outside of our staff salaries, the largest portion of our church budget goes to missions, you need to know that. That's a big deal. Outside of our regular budgeted giving to missions, we feel like God wants us to be especially generous at two times a year. And so you know this. 100% of our Christmas Eve offerings go to a designated gift. 50% of our Easter morning offerings go to a designated gift. And so that's our resources, how they come in and how they go out. Um, but there's another question underneath this one that I want to hit quickly. Number six is, if giving is so important, how much should I give? Awkward question. Here's why it's awkward. Because the New Testament doesn't give us a number. And if you're like the number type, where you just want like, I want the number, I want the percentage. The New Testament doesn't give that to you. The Old Testament suggests that 10%, and it's the first 10% to show that giving is a sign of faith. Trusting that God's going to come through. The New Testament, though, calls you to something else. Generosity. How do you measure generosity? And I'll tell you. I have no idea. (laughs) It's really hard. But it's why Jesus commends the widow for giving basically two hay pennies. Right? You remember that story? He says, she rocked it out of the park. Well, the rich dude over here is like, okay, yeah. The point is, God doesn't need our money. He can do whatever he wants to do with or without us. Giving is not about the dollars and the check. It's about your heart. So this is me, though something I notice about generosity, generosity usually pinches. For it to be generosity, it has to hurt a little bit. No one ever asks me this, but I'll be personal. Um, Mandy and I give 10% of every paycheck back to the North Canton Chapel. And the reason we do that is, well, some weeks we aim for like nine, and some weeks we aim for 11, just to kind of keep it interesting, you know? But we do that because we believe in the work that God's doing here and want to be obedient to God. So yes, while I draw a salary, as do all of our staff and pastors, we also give back to the ministry here. Um, So practically, if you're a part of North Canton Chapel, I want to make you a promise. You need to hear this. You will never get a phone call from me or our elders or any staff member saying, hey, you haven't tithed recently, what's going on? Some churches may do that, we're not going to do that. Because God's word says that God loves a cheerful giver. And when you make a phone call like that, you immediately put me in the no cheer zone. (laughs) So that's not how we do it. Final word on this before we move on. Uh, We have several ways to give. You know that. You can give in the offering boxes in the back. You can give online. A lot of people, since COVID, actually, uh, either give online or they have their tithes deducted from their paycheck. And here's my only word for you, okay? I love that technology. It's great. But just pastor to people here for a second. Give in a way that feels like worship. It's not just you know, binary code moving you know, zeros and ones around the internet. If, that, if you can look at your statement and go, thank you, God, for that, cool. But if you need to go, I just need to bring a thing in, do that. Just give it away that feels like worship for you, whatever that is. All right. Church membership. How about this question? Does church membership matter? This is a tricky thing in our day because the only thing that we have memberships to are country clubs and gyms uh, both of which exist for vastly different purposes than the church. So what is church membership? Uh, Here at North Canton Chapel, we have a membership experience. It's called Membership Matters. And I love that phrase because it says, it's a statement, it says membership matters, like a period. But then on top of that, it's like, here are the matters pertaining to church membership. Um, And the big teaching of that three-week experience boils down to one idea. Church membership simply says, I belong here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to seek my spiritual nourishment here. I'm going to be faithful to attend worship gatherings and sit under God's word as it's preached here. I'm going to be involved here to use my body, here my gifts to better the body here. And so even though a lot of churches these days are are doing away with membership stuff, um, I think it's really important just because it says, I want to be here. And I'm committed to being with these people. So if you're curious about Membership Matters, um, head to ncchapelcom membership and you can learn a bit more. Um, we're holding off until September, if you saw those dates, because um, our online community pastor, uh, Matt Brumfield, and I are helping to rebuild our membership experience so it feels a little bit more insightful for you as you're walking through um, that three-week class together. So again, all right, flipping the coin to the other side, how do you leave a church It strikes me that I've been going to church for 42 years, and I've never heard a pastor talk about this. It also strikes me that I'm going to give you information that I hope you never have to use. (laughs) (laughs) So let's back up a bit, though. How does God's word describe the church? So think about this. A couple word pictures may come to mind. God's word calls the church a body. God's word calls the church a branch that's connected to a vine. A building. Picture those things. A body, a branch, and a building. Got those word pictures in your mind? So with those there, I want to give you two things you shouldn't do if you ever want to leave a church, and then five things you should. First thing you shouldn't do, don't go silently. The motivation behind leaving a church silently is two things, usually. Most of the time it's because we don't want confrontation and we know it's going to be weird. So quick corrective, just me being personal as a pastor who has led through some pretty tough times in our culture, my take, silence is always a more painful sting than conversation ever is. And you know that in your own relationships. If somebody just walks out on you, your brain starts to invent all kinds of reasons what you did wrong. Remember, the church is people. So do the human thing. Silence never preserves a relationship. It always reduces a relationship. And so we should do this differently. Another reason why we're we're tempted to slip away, though, is because maybe we feel like we don't matter and no one's going to miss us anyway. And let me tell you, if you ever hear that voice, that you don't matter, that voice is never from the Lord. Ever. Anytime there's a voice telling you that you don't matter and that you are not a part of something and that nobody cares, that is not Jesus talking to you. Second thing you shouldn't do, if you're not going to leave silently, don't go violently. <laughs> Here's what this one sounds like. I'm not happy, and I have talked to a number of people who feel the same way. I hate that line. <laughs> sounds ugly, though, right? And it happens in churches all the time. Um, and the reason that we leave in that like soft violence, it's not that hard to understand, We've reached some conclusions about some things, and we want to feel justified in our conclusions. And so we arm ourselves with a bunch of other people's opinions to buttress those conclusions. Um, that's the adult version of like third-grade playground gossip. <laughs> it's mean-spirited, it's really immature, and it's hurtful. So back to the metaphors, though, remember? okay? If you don't leave silently and you don't leave violently, The reason you don't is because the church is a body, a branch, and a building. Those things have something in common. They are fragile, and they need some looking after. If you woke up next morning, and there was not a finger on your hand, you'd probably notice. Like little toe. You'd notice if that little thing was gone, because the body matters. If you got home from church today and there's a big limb hanging in your front yard, you'd go, that's not supposed to be there, right? You would notice if a branch was missing. If you just like demoed a room in your house, I think your spouse would probably have an awareness that that happened, right? That's why the word, God's word gives us those metaphors. The church, to be described as it is in the New Testament, silence or violence are the theological equivalent of self-harm. You hurt only yourself. So if that's what not to do, what do you do? Here's advice that I don't want you to ever take. But in all seriousness, if you've recently left another church, here's some things that you might, could do. First off, you should have a conversation. And that's really hard. But it's really important. Not just for them, but for you. It's good for your soul. Second thing, you should be clear. Don't be evasive or cowardly. Say what you mean and mean what you say. It's okay. It's okay. Third thing, give that person, if it's a pastor or someone else, give that person time to think and reflect and respond. Church is not a one-way Wendy's comment card. Fourth, give the ministry that you're involved with time to plan, okay, like a few months out. If you're on a worship team or if you're teaching Sunday school somewhere, don't show up and go, it's my last Sunday here. It's really hard. Please don't do that. Fifth thing, View leaving a church as running towards something, not running from something. talk with people every once in a while here at North Canton Chapel, and they say, you know, we believe God's calling us, either we're moving locations, or uh, I had a conversation recently, a guy says, you know, we've been here for a number of years, and we feel like God's calling us to a church plant in Canton, and I'm like, praise God, man, like, that's awesome, like, how can we pray for you? How can we send you? That's a whole lot different than running from something. So, last question, then we've got to wrap it up for today. Last little section of the junk drawer. Told you it was a lot of content. What makes a church successful? And I've got a minute and 41 seconds. We could spend a whole week on this. Most of us, though, have been conditioned almost since birth to think about a successful church that, that looks like the three Bs. Bigger buildings, more bodies in the buildings, and a bigger budget. Because that's how we think as Americans, right? Church is very different. <laughs> Not necessarily. (laughs) That's why we drive past the skyscraper and go, gosh, that's so impressive. But we drive past a little country church with eight cars in the parking lot and we go, ah, what a shame. Not by kingdom standards. So what's a successful church? It's actually really simple, but it's very difficult. Funny about that, I think a lot of things in the kingdom are that way. They're not complex, they're simple, but they're also not easy, they're very difficult. And so here are Paul's words, and this is where we're going to land today. Here's what he says. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, or passed away. Behold, all, all new has come, or the new has come. Personal conversion, you hear that in there? Then he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then said, do whatever you want. And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What's that mean, Paul? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Here's the definition of a successful church for where we're going to have to land this morning. The church is successful when it is as eager to extend reconciliation as it is to receive reconciliation. Having received it, having received God's mercy, our eternity locked up because of what the cross has accomplished. Having that, we understand it's now our responsibility to take that message and lay it over all of our relationships. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and build your buildings. He did not say, go into all the world and fill your buildings or expand your budgets. What did he say? Go into all the world and make disciples. (laughs) Those other things may come, but they are never the metric because they are never the goal, they are never essential. And so the question cannot be, where are you attending? The question must be, who are you discipling? This is kingdom math, that in Christ's kingdom, multiplication beats addition every day of the week and twice on Sunday. The church is successful when it is as eager to extend reconciliation as it is to receive reconciliation. And so, Pastor Mike is going to come out, and here's how we're going to close this morning. Um, we're going to stay seated for a little bit, and Mike is going to play a song just quietly. And I want you to receive it and reflect on it. It's a great song that you may have heard before. And there's going to be a point um, about halfway through, I think, where we're going to take a minute or two, where the words are going to stop, and it's just going to be instrumental. It's going to be kind of quiet. And in the space of that minute or two, I want you to pray. I want you to gather with somebody next to you. If you're here with a spouse or your family, you can kind of turn into each other for a minute. Pray out loud. Or you can pray silently if that's what you want. But I want you to pray for this church, our church, the church that you're a part of. I want you to pray for the churches in North Canton. I want you to pray for the church in the United States. And I want you to pray for the church in the world. We're not done until he comes back. I know the church is sometimes a hard thing to be a part of. I know that. But I hope you've arrived through these five weeks and you can join me in saying, yes, she is lovely. She's still beautiful because the Lord still pursues her and he always will.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media.